Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you that we get to be together this morning. Thank you for your kindness and faithfulness to us. We thank you that we're able to mark points in our nation, in our city, where evil was undone. And so we thank you that we get to, to mark that and celebrate that today, um, looking back a hundred something years. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word today, that you would, that you would speak to us. We pray that that you would stir our hearts. I pray today for those that are here who are struggling with faith or belief, who have doubts, who have questions, who are exploring what Christianity might be. I pray specifically that, that today would be helpful and bring clarity that, that you would meet them in this place and that, Lord Jesus, that you would make yourself clear by the Spirit. And so as we open your word, we, we ask that you would move in our hearts and we pray this, Lord Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, we are coming toward the end of a series that we've been in, in the Gospel of John. And so the next couple of weeks, today we kind of actually kind of finish the Gospel, but then there's a, a chapter that's really kind of epilogue that we get into over the next two Sundays. But that's it, two Sundays from now, and so the end of April, and the Gospel of John Lord willing, will be complete. And so as we come toward the end, we have saw last week that when last week we celebrated a pretty significant holiday in the Christian calendar year, right? And we can still say he is risen. There we go, church. You're still with it. The reason the church has gathered on Sundays for the last 2,000 years is to mark and celebrate that it was on the first day of the week, on a Sunday morning, that Jesus was raised from death to life. And so, yes, we focus on that on Easter Sunday, but it is the responsibility of the church to proclaim that reality and that truth every time we're gathered together. And so that is why we're together, is because Christ was raised from death to life, he is risen. And we could do that all year, but we are going to keep it as a special Easter thing for the most part. All right, so, but that, that's an important understanding that, like, how did we get a Sabbath to move from Saturdays to Sundays? Why did we move from Sabbath to Lord's Day? It's all because of Christ and the work that he did for us. And so today we are going to start with, um, we saw last week that on the morning that Jesus was raised from death to life, that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and it was, it was, it was open. And so she looked into the darkness, but didn't see Jesus. She thought somebody had taken the body and she ran back and got Peter and John who ran to the tomb. And remember John was faster because they started running together, but the other disciple got there first. And so Peter went straight into the tomb. They saw that it was empty. The disciples went back home and then Jesus appeared to Mary, who, when, G when she heard Jesus' voice, when he said her name, that was when she realized who he is and when she came to belief. And so we saw that for some of us, when we're in the midst of darkness, we need to be able to hear the voice of Jesus saying our name to us 
calling us by name, and that is what will give us hope in the darkness. Well, today we continue as Jesus now comes to his disciples, minus one, and then also comes to that one disciple. And so today as we look at this, we're, we're going to focus on, because John, it's really curious that he ends the, the bulk part of his gospel before his purpose statement, which we'll also read today, that this, this is kind of the climax of the gospel, is Jesus appearing to a man named Thomas. Now, if you grew up in church, we, you have a nickname for Thomas, right? What, is the, what do we call Thomas? Yeah, everybody knows. Doubting Thomas. That's like a thing we say, even if you might not be churchy, that you've, you've heard the phrase thrown out at, at people maybe, that are, why are you being a doubting Thomas? And so we've given Thomas that kind of moniker, but, but I want to look at whether or not that's fair today. Thomas does make some statements in saying, like, hey, the rest of you guys saw Jesus and I haven't yet, and so until I put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side, I, I'm not going to believe. And so today, this is an invitation to all of you who are skeptics, or if you're wrestling with doubts and questions and fears, because there's definitely an impression of Christianity and of religion that it takes some kind of like a blind leap of faith. And so you'll hear that, like, is it just a blind faith? Like at some point, you just need to take that leap. And I want to tell you, this is not a blind leap of faith. Now, every one of us has faith in something. The question is, where do we place our faith? But the truth is that underlying any belief that we have in Christianity is a claim to a historic event in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And again, any underlying belief we hold, whether Christian or not, takes faith. Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist who um, a couple decades ago went on a journey as an investigative journalist to try to disprove Scripture and try to disprove specifically the gospel accounts in Christianity. And so as he dug into it as an investigative journalist, the funniest thing happened is that all of a sudden he went from being an atheist to going, oh no, I think I believe this. And so he wrote about that in a book he called The Case for Christ. And, and in that book he says, to continue an atheist, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. And I simply didn't have that much faith. And so Christianity is a call to faith, a call to belief, sure. But it's not a blind faith. And so as we see in John today, as we continue to celebrate the risen Lord Jesus, we see that, he, that, again, that he was raised from death to life, and this is the singular key point to Christianity. Whatever we might want to talk about, about different ethics or different implications and different applications of what Christ did and what it means to follow Jesus, like those are all important questions. Um, if we want to talk about things like the age of the earth or different debates that people have had historically, those aren't unimportant, but I want you to understand today that there is a singular moment that it all boils down to, and it's the question, was Jesus raised from death to life? Did he resurrect from the dead? Because even the the Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. And so faith is not blind. This is what we read today in John chapter 20. Mary had gone and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace 
be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, if you believe because you've seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at this today, we see that faith is not blind, that first, Jesus resurrected from the dead. These are eyewitness accounts. And so as he appears to the disciples, this is the same day. So Mary saw him that morning. She went running back and told she was the first one to tell the good news to anybody. So Jesus chose Mary, a woman, to go back to his disciples and say to them, I have seen Jesus. He is alive. And go back and tell them. And so they were all in a room, locked in a room together. There was a place that they were staying in Jerusalem. And there's different traditions on where that was. But, but as they were locked in this room together, because they were afraid... They, they were scared. It tells us right here that they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, which makes sense. Think about how soon this is after it was just Thursday night that they had their feast with Jesus, that Judas slipped out in the middle of it. It was just Thursday night that, um, that Jesus was arrested in the garden, that he was, he was dragged into the high priest's courtyard and asked questions. He was put before Pilate. He was killed on Friday morning. He was hung on a cross, and by the afternoon, he was taken down from the cross, dead, and placed in a tomb. They had Saturday that there was nothing, and then this is just Sunday, and now all of a sudden, Jesus comes into a locked room with them. But it, so it makes sense that they were scared because they just watched all this happen to Jesus. And they had Mary tell them, hey, th- his body's not there. And then come back and say, well, I saw him. Like for this, they didn't have a grid for it. And, and the disciples were rightly fearful and confused. It's not that big of a leap to think for them to be thinking like, gosh, the same stuff that just happened to him could happen to us. Like they could be coming for us next. And so they were locked in this room, and Jesus came and all of a sudden was among them. Now, in Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to people, it's interesting because we have kind of a crossing of two worlds. Jesus is in his resurrected body, in glory. There's a physical reality to, to his body that they're able to touch him and place their fingers in the holes in his hands and place their hands in his side, and yet he can just show up places. So I don't know what that means for us in eternity and when we get resurrected bodies, but I think it would be amazing to be able to teleport anywhere in the new heavens and new earth. (laughs) 
Like I have friends who are Christians in Belfast and in LA and in Southeast Asia and, I, and in Africa, and I would love to just be like, this is not distance anymore. Like FaceTime and Zoom are great, but we can just go and we're there. Um, don't, that is not a theological <laughs> statement of truth. This is just my hopes. <laughs> All right, so, but Jesus shows up in the room with them, and, and this mirrors what other gospels say. So in Luke chapter 24, we see this. That Luke said, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It's the same kind of greeting, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This makes sense. We would think the same thing if like two to three days after we saw somebody dead, if they showed up in a room with us. So they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling at them, he said, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took and ate it before them. This is one of my favorite post-resurrection things, because this is Sunday night, and Jesus says, I'm hungry. It's been a hard couple of days. Can you guys give me something to eat? And so he's able to eat breakfast with them. They're able to touch him, and yet there's something different about Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last week, that, that Mary saw him, and we don't know whether it was through, for grief or through tears that she didn't recognize him, but, but something was different about Jesus. And yet he was completely recognizable. We see this in the story of the road to Emmaus as a couple of disciples are walking and Jesus walks with them on this long journey and it's only when he, dis when he breaks bread and gives thanks that they go, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. Their eyes are opened. And so the, Jesus is raised from death to life. It's physical reality. This is not just a spiritual resurrection. And, and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John show that the disciples, like, these are all written accounts from eyewitnesses. Matthew and Mark and John were followers of Jesus who were in that room. When John writes this, he is saying, I was there in that room. This is what happened. Jesus came and said, peace be with you. And he said it again, peace be with you. Even as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So John is saying, I remember that night. Of course, he could never forget it. Luke tells us at the beginning that he was a historian that was doing his best to do interviews and compile accounts, and he was a medical doctor, educated and trained, and so he put together a, a compilation of history so that it could be sent to people that were not from a Jewish context to understand what was happening and then what had happened in, the, in Jerusalem and in Galilee. And so as we think about this, this, this fact that is presented as fact in Scripture, this, is, this makes Christianity different than any other religion in that we are completely contingent and reliant on the historicity of the resurrection. If it happened, it changes everything. It shows that Jesus is God, who he claimed to be. It shows that we have hope beyond death. It shows us that beyond death, there is a physical reality that awaits us in resurrection. And so it changes, but if it didn't happen, then this, we're wasting our time. Christianity doesn't, isn't a great like, ethic to follow to make you feel good about yourself. C.S. Lewis said famously that I didn't come to Christianity for comfort. I knew a bottle of port would have done that. And so it's, we, are, we are completely dependent on this historical fact. Now, in that, it's important to realize that most of the Gospels were finished within 30 years of these events. 
That could sound like a long time, but it's simply not. John was likely the last one written, and John's was written even then. It was within probably 60 years. So I just want to give you a reminder of the kinds of things that were happening 30 years ago. I know for some of you this sounds like ancient history back in the 1900s, um, but it's not that old. There are plenty of us here that are eyewitnesses to it. 1993, Bill Clinton was sworn in as the 42nd president of the United States of America. On February 26th, the World Trade Center was bombed in Lower Manhattan. In Waco, Texas in 1993, there was a 51-day standoff with the Branch Davidian cult led by David Koresh. It ended with a fire that killed 76 people. In 1993, Eritrea voted to become an independent nation from Ethiopia. Monica Seles, the tennis player, was stabbed during a tennis match in Hamburg, Germany. The Maastricht Treaty formally established the European Union 30 years ago. The first Beanie Babies appeared on the market. Did any of you get into that craze? You admitted it publicly, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so that, that started 30 years ago. And because we can gauge anything in the 90s based on this, the Chicago Bulls <laughs> completed their first three-peat out of two. It's just not that long ago. There are plenty of eyewitnesses that know these things happened that we can go and ask. And there's an invitation in the way the Gospels were written to say, here's people who experienced and saw and touched the risen Lord Jesus. It's saying, go talk to them. They're still around. It is a historical claim. Even 60 years ago, in 1963, JFK was shot in Dallas. And in our own city, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial at the March on Washington. 60 years ago is simply not that long ago. So the important points here are that these are eyewitness accounts from these men. And these disciples were afraid. They were locked in a room. Like, if I was writing my own history of how something got started this way, if I was creating a religion, I wouldn't have shown the key leader, Peter, to have denied our Savior. <laughs> Say, our key leader messed up before things even got going, denied him three times because he was a coward, and we were all hiding in a locked room while Mary went and actually experienced the risen Lord Jesus. But they were afraid, and so we have the reality that the leaders of Jerusalem and Rome were against them. They had just killed their leader and their friend. There was never a body produced. The Jewish leaders or the Roman leaders, all they had to do to end this entire thing was to produce Jesus' body, which had an armed guard at his tomb, according to Matthew. And yet, somehow, these unschooled, untrained men who were so afraid, each one of them shifted almost instantaneously toward boldness and every one of them went to their death or experienced terrible suffering at the claim that Jesus was raised from death to life. And so we need to address that. We need to deal with that, ask the question, but then look at the reality that is presented in front of us from these eyewitness accounts. Jesus resurrected from death to life. Second, investigate the claims about Jesus. So again, this is the invitation to you. Those of you who are struggling with doubts, questions, don't think that that's wrong. I know that, that it, oftentimes in church contexts, if you grew up in church, in, in many churches, that's seen as a bad thing. And so if you ask questions, people will start asking, like, you backsliding? What do you, you, there's a fear of asking questions because you don't want to introduce the possibility of doubt. That's not what we see in the heart of Jesus toward Thomas here. 
Now, Thomas was a skeptic, but he still hung around. Now, I want to look real quick. So Jesus appeared to his disciples, but again, this is really important to note. They were locked together, and, and so they were all together at that point, but without Thomas. Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. And so even when we get to Thomas, I think we need to realize that this wasn't just Thomas on his own saying, you know what? I won't believe unless I see him physically. What he had just heard reported from his friends, the other 10 apostles, remember Judas is gone, so we're down to 11, Thomas wasn't there. So 10 of these, these disciples who would become apostles, which means sent ones, because Jesus said, here, I'm going to send you just as, as the Father sent me. They were the authorities in the early church who had experienced the resurrected Jesus and seen him face to face. And so Thomas wasn't there that night, but he heard his friends say, where were you? You know, we don't know. He could have been out grocery shopping at the markets. He could have been just out on a walk that night, just trying to process what Mary had said. I don't know. Maybe he had gone and seen the We don't know where he was, but he wasn't in that room. But as he came back to the disciples, they were saying to him, Jesus was here. We fed him some broiled fish. He was hungry. He, we put our hand, or we touched his hands and saw his feet. We put our hand on his side. Like, we experienced him. We touched him. We, we hugged him. We were with Jesus. And so Thomas there isn't just randomly saying, if I don't put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side, I won't believe. What Thomas is saying is, why did I miss this? Like, Jesus doesn't do anything unintentionally. Jesus knew when he was coming at that moment that Thomas wasn't going to be in the room. And so Thomas, I think, is saying, like, you guys got, all got to experience this. I'm, I'm glad for you. Like, you, you have, it says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, so their hearts were filled with joy, because in, because, and Jesus brought them peace, and he promised them the Holy Spirit and gave them this commission saying, go, and, and now they're, they're being told, go tell people about this. That's the, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He's not telling the disciples there that they are the ones who absolve sin. No, Jesus did that once and for all. His work was finished. What he's saying is, go and preach the gospel so that people can come to forgiveness. They were sent to do that, and Thomas is left out of what the other ten had received. He wasn't with the others, and so when they told him, we've seen the Lord, he says, I've got to experience it too. I want to put my hands, I want to see the marks of the hands and, and the nails on his hands, and I want to place my finger into those marks, and I want to place my hand in his side, and that's what I need to believe. He's saying, Why, you know, I need to see the same things that you all have seen. And so he was a skeptic, but you notice too that Thomas hung around. It was eight days later, which the way days were counted, this could have been the following Sunday that they were back together. And so it was eight days later that Jesus comes again. The disciples were inside again, but this time Thomas was with them, it tells us. The doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Same thing that he had done a week before. And then he goes to Thomas specifically and says, here I am. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it on my side. Don't disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. This is important. For those of you who are skeptics, I want to challenge you. Do the work. Don't just shut down the exploration of what this Jesus guy might be about and live on your own assumptions. 
interact with the source material, read the Gospels, interact with people whose lives have been changed, people who are sitting around you right now that would say, I have experienced the presence of the risen Lord Jesus and my life has been changed by it. Make some time to talk to theologians or pastors. We're available here and would love to talk with you and spend time with you and spend time around Christian community to see if people's lives are actually impacted by the things they claim. And for those of us who are Christians, there is no sense here, we need to see this, there is no sense here that the disciples begrudged Thomas. They didn't shame Thomas. They didn't say to Thomas, like, dude, we're telling you what's true. Like, what's your problem? Shouldn't you believe? Like, Thomas, would you stop asking questions and demanding things of Jesus? You're putting God to the test. They didn't condemn him for having questions and doubts, but instead, what did they do? Well, they were too glad to be shaming of Thomas. They were, they, they, their hearts were filled and they were saying, we've seen Jesus. Like, he is the one he claimed to be. He's, he, we've seen him. They, they believed that they, in him and they, it, their life had changed. They had good news to, to, that they had experienced. And they were saying, what did they say to Thomas? Jesus is alive. We've seen the Lord. We got to see him and touch him and, and hug him and eat with him. We, like Jesus has resurrected from the grave. They embraced Thomas. They spent time with Thomas, trusting that the truth of the resurrection really is true and that Jesus would show himself to Thomas at the right time. This is the church. We have good news to tell. Just like the disciples, Jesus says, hey, the Father sent me, I'm sending you, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. This, it didn't happen at this moment, that's Pentecost that it's looking ahead to. And so it's, as they received the Holy Spirit, they were able to preach the good news of Jesus, they saw other people join them, and when you get to Acts 2, what do we see? That they were gathering together regularly at the temple in worship together, in people's homes, outside of the temple, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, those who had seen the risen Lord Jesus and had the authority to proclaim him. They had devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which is, they, they ate in each other's homes, but they also celebrated the Lord's Supper that he had given them to remember his broken body and spilled blood, and, and they devoted themselves to the prayers to being together in worship and prayer with the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, and prayers. They gathered in each other's homes. They provided for each other's needs. And because of the community of God's people that existed, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church needs to be a place where people come in to ask questions, to have doubts, to try to explore the reality or truthfulness of the gospel and we need to be embracing of people and trusting that God in his right timing will reveal himself. That should be our posture toward the skeptic, and it should be our posture toward the deconstructing Christian. And that's one of the, the hardest realities that we see around us right now, and I have no doubt in my mind that some of you here are, are wrestling with your own, your own deconstruction. It's hard. And there's good reason for it. For some of you, it's church hurt that you've been really burned. For me, it's usually a question of not of like, what is it about the gospel that you're fighting with? It's more, it's more a question of who has hurt you. Some of you have been burned, and that makes it hard to trust anything that you're hearing from a church. 
For some of you, there's been, it's hard because there's cultural pressure and the, the calls, call of the gospel is difficult. It's costly to us. That's why Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you have to take up your cross daily to follow me. But you've also seen Christians use those ethics as a bat to beat people outside of the church, ignoring that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, like, hey, when I tell you not to associate with people that are caught up in their own rebellion against God and sin, I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about in the church. Because if I told you about that about the world, you'd never talk to anybody in the world. So make sure that in the church you're taking sin seriously, but don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. And so it's hard when you see Christianity misrepresented and, and false versions of it. And so I want to say to you, like, there, there still is good news. Trust Jesus. People are going to let you down. People are going to hurt you. But Jesus never will. He really has raised from death to life. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And he is the reason that you can have peace and hope in life. And it, you need to have a safe place to ask questions to express your doubts and fears. And I really believe that within a church, what we want to provide for you when, if you're struggling is the gospel, the good news, Jesus is alive, safety to be able to ask questions and wrestle and struggle, and time. That it, we know it's not gonna be instantaneous for most of you. It takes time. But we also trust that God is good and sovereign. And so investigate the claims about Jesus. The truth will hold up. And that gets to the third point. Jesus invites questions. When Jesus comes to Thomas, the first thing he says is not, Thomas, you got this wrong. What does he say to him? He shows up and says, peace be with you. Thomas, come here. Put your finger in my hands. Come on, put... Put your hand on my side. Now, Thomas, don't disbelieve. Believe. Now, he does say, Thomas, I think there's an implication toward the end there. I think he is saying to Thomas, like, Thomas, you, you shouldn't need this. Your brothers have seen me. You trust their word. And so you know that Mary and the other, the other ten aren't lying to you. But he invites him in. Come. Now, throughout John, we've seen that Jesus has really hard words for some people and a really welcoming demeanor and posture toward others. And, and while both sets of people seem to miss what's going on in front of them, and so everybody misses it with Jesus, the disciples miss it. Throughout. You read all four Gospels, and it is amazing. Again, for me, part of the, the truthfulness of what the Gospels have written is that the disciples, if, if they were writing it, if I was writing my own religion, I would not make myself look like a fool at every stop. And they messed up all the time, but Jesus stuck with them. And there were others, they, you know, they were his closest friends and they didn't get it. But what is the difference when Jesus has some people that he welcomes in, like the Samaritan woman that he welcomes in at the well in, in John 4, like, um, and, and others along the way that he, he welcomed in and, and helped versus those he had hard words for, <clears throat> which is often the religious leaders. I, I, the only difference that I see is that, or the primary difference that I see is that, the, that Jesus had his hardest words for people who were convinced most of their self-justification. For those who didn't think they needed a savior, but thought they had achieved righteousness, but had the most openness and welcoming posture toward those who were earnestly seeking truth and help. And so come to Christ and ask good questions, earnestly seek truth. 
But if we start justifying ourselves and relying on our own righteousness, that's when we're not going to be, when our hearts are going to become calloused from sensing his presence. This is something that I had to learn kind of growing up and in, through my high school years. I, I grew up in a family that was, like my, my parents loved Jesus, and so I, I grew up knowing the gospel and the basics of Christianity, but we didn't go, really go to church from the early part of my life because we moved around a ton. I lived in six houses by the time I was 12 years old, and so that changes things. It's hard to like tie into a local community when you're bouncing around. Um, but by the time we got into middle school, we, had, we were beginning to settle into a church that we ended up going to that I threw, like I got married by the pastors in that church. Um, and so, so it, that was in middle school. So as I got into high school, I was experiencing the, the cultural realities of church for the first time ever. Like before that, the only church I had really experienced consistency, consistently that I remember was my dad had a Sunday morning paper route for the Chicago Tribune. And so he'd get me up at like 3 a.m. on Sundays and I'd go stuff papers with him. They were huge papers. I don't, know, I don't know if any of you remember Sunday papers, but they were massive. And so and then we'd drive around and he would have Moody Radio in Chicago on. And so I'd listen to Tony Evans preach and um, Chuck Swindoll. And they, so that was my children's church, was radio preachers. And then I got into a church in adolescence where everybody feels awkward and like an outsider. And I was like, I am awkward and I am an outsider. And it was hard. And so I knew the things that I believed, but I didn't really get along with the church kids. And I took a posture that, that I think is often the case for young, immature Christians, that with my friends at school, I loved, I don't know how to say, argument is <laughs> probably the most real I could say. Like, I loved lively debate. That sounds way more, um, way more civil. <laughs> But there were friends of mine, I, I can still remember Tom and Sam and Brian in particular, we, we had lunch together every day. By, the, by I think it was junior year, we got to go off campus for lunch, then we were going to Taco Bell. Um, but every day we'd sit at lunch and day after day after day, we would sit and debate each other and then go back and do some more research and gear up and debate each other some more. And we were arguing about stuff like age of the earth, creation, evolution, things that, that now I don't even think my, so A, my views have probably shifted over time and B, I just don't think they're as essential. But it, it, I, looking back, what I realized at the time, I thought I was contending for my faith. What I didn't realize is that God doesn't need us to defend him. Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. We want to understand that our faith is reasonable, that it's true, to understand that it's grounded and right. But too often, if we focus on winning an argument, the reality is you're going to lose the person. Because think about this. Have you ever had somebody make you look dumb or think you sound dumb and then gone, you know what, I want to spend more time with them? I think the things they're talking about, I want to embrace as the core of my life. It doesn't happen. And so I actually regret a lot of those things. And uh, a few years ago, I was able to reconnect with Tom, one of the guys. He was living, he told me he was living near D.C. And I found out it was like in West Virginia. So I was like, well, <laughs> I guess that's closer than Chicago. But, um, but they, Tom and his wife came over and we spent time together. And, and I actually, I apologized to Tom and he wanted to jump back into some of the same old debates. And I said, man, this is not the most important thing. This is what's important. I love you. God loves you. Jesus was raised from death to life. Let's talk about that. I want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about all the other stuff. 
Like that's interesting and it's not unimportant, but it's not the core of things. I think Paul wrote Timothy and he was writing to a young pastor. And he said to that, this young pastor, Timothy, who he had left in Ephesus where things had gone hard and the, the elders kind of were steering the church away. And so Timothy went in to clean it up. And he said to Timothy, flee the youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What are the youthful passions or the passions of your youth, if you're reading NIV or maybe KJV? Often when I've heard this taught, I've heard it taught as, uh, it's usually like a men's conference talking about lust or something like that. Or, but but he, Paul tells us, what are, the, what are the youthful passions? Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul is telling Timothy, be postured more like Jesus. Invite the questions, endure evil, even when people speak against you, but, but teach, proclaim the good things. He says later on, like, Timothy, whatever you do, do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word in season and out of season. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist, proclaiming the good news, and that fulfills your ministry. But don't get caught up in the youthful passions of being quarrelsome and argumentative and winning arguments and, and you know, getting into these ignorant controversies that aren't worth your time. Focus on what matters much, most. Don't get into debates for the sake of debate. But if anyone is genuinely curious, really interested in hearing and learning and understanding, take time and be patient, trusting that God will work. So Jesus invites questions. And if you're a Christian, we should have that posture as well. Fourth and finally, find peace and hope in believing. Three times Jesus says, peace be with you. Why? Now, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's still a greeting today. If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll be greeted everywhere you go with the word shalom. It's hello. It's also peace. It's, it's well-being. It's wholeness. And so it's a regular greeting. So there's some aspect that Jesus was probably greeting them in a way that they, that they would have been used to being greeted. But it's caught here by John three times, I think because it's more important and deeper than that. Back in four, chapter 14, Jesus had said to the disciples... He said, listen, things are going to be hard. You're going to suffer, but a spirit, the Holy Spirit is coming. And so what is he? he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus was saying, this kind of peace is coming. Not like the world gives, but a different level of peace that I'm going to give to you. In chapter 16, Jesus said again, um, he said there, I have said these things to you that you may have in, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. He says things are going to be hard, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus here was, had been telling the disciples that he came to bring them peace. And remember, on Easter, this is on Easter evening, the Sunday that Jesus rose, and on Friday, John heard him say on the cross, "It is finished." 
that on our own, we are enemies of God. We are alienated from him. But in the cross, Jesus has made peace. We are reconciled to God and receive peace and life. And that's why John, his entire gospel has been written because of verses 30 and 31. We've been talking about these through the whole series, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. John is highly selective in what he actually gave us. And when scholars have tried to figure out the content John has given us, it's probably around 21 days total that John touches in the whole gospel. There's a lot more that John experienced with Jesus in the few years that he was with him, but why did he give us the stuff he gave us from these 21 days? Well, he tells us, I gave this to you, these things are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's life, it's hope, it's life now in its fullness and forever in God's presence that in Christ we are invited into the inner life of the triune God and the simple call to us, the only thing we are called to do is to believe. And this has been the thread through the whole gospel is people either believe or they do not believe. And that is the difference, whether they believe in Christ and have hope and life and peace or do not believe in Christ and continue on their own. One theologian said, John's purpose is not academic. He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth. The truth that Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. The Jesus whose portrait is drawn in this gospel. But such faith is not an end in itself. It is directed toward the goal of personal eschatological salvation that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this brings up the question for me that I want to come back to that I, that I mentioned at the beginning. Why did John end his gospel here with Thomas. I know we have another chapter, again, that's kind of an epilogue where John is saying, okay, this is why he wrote the gospel and now he gives some background on him and Peter. But what, this is a strange climax, that the resurrection ends here with Thomas. Look at the way that Jesus met different people here. Mary was in, her, in darkness and she needed to hear Jesus say her name, so he met her where she, where she needed most. The disciples were locked in the room and afraid. And so Jesus came and declared peace in the midst of their fear, saying, yeah, it's going to be hard, but I'm right here. Thomas struggled with not being there and being left out, and Jesus came to him on, with the other disciples and said, come on, Thomas, don't believe, but believe. And so he met three different people and groups of people in ways that they specifically needed. But I think it's important, again, that Thomas missed out on something at the first appearance. He missed out on a commissioning. The rest of the disciples were commissioned as apostles, told by Jesus, you are the ones that are going to bring this forward. I am sending you just as the Father sent me. And Thomas wasn't there. But the key, the distinguishing mark of an apostle in the early church was that they had spent time with Jesus and personally experienced the resurrected Lord Jesus that they were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus Christ so that they could say, I have seen him, this is fact, it is real. And Jesus spent 40 days with them, teaching them, reassuring them, and, and it was essential from the earliest days that Christianity was rooted in real, hard, historical fact. Because you see, the gospel of Christ is not 
primarily about living better, about our personal ethics. Yes, we need to follow Jesus, be citizens of a new kingdom, and that works itself out in our lives. It impacts the way we live now as we see our citizenship not in the kingdoms of this world, but above so that we work for the values and the implementation of Christ's kingdom. But that is not what, what ultimately is going to change our lives, and we are shown that through Scripture. Now, if I came and consistently preached how we need to live better lives and and do better with our lives, you might leave more satisfied as a church because you'd leave going, okay, here's what I need to do with my personal finances this week. Next week, here's what I need to do in communication with my roommates. Next week, here's parenting. But true Christianity is not a religion of trying to do our best. The whole Testament shows us God's people trying to do their best and failing. Our best will not cut it. The law shows us that, as the prophets say, our righteousness is filthy rags before God. What does the gospel say? Jesus rose from the dead. There are eyewitnesses to his death, resurrection, and ascension. Belief in Jesus brings peace and hope. Now go. Bear witness to this good news. And so this is a challenge for every one of us today. Look at the evidence Everything we have here is written down by eyewitnesses whose lives were forever changed by the events that were captured. John wrote it all down for us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But that faith is not blind. It's really belief that Jesus resurrected from the dead. You can investigate claims about Jesus that he invites our questions and that we can find peace and hope in believing. And so if you are a Christian, this ought to completely reshape and radicalize your life. If you believe in Jesus, you believe that he is who this gospel claims him to be, that he is the creator God who took on flesh to dwell among us, that you believe that he died on the cross under Pontius Pilate, that you believe that he was raised from death to life, that he ascended to the Father, and you believe that he is coming again to make all things right and to make all things new, and you don't go and tell people about it, and it doesn't show up in your life, then your life is contradicting what you claim to believe. You're not showing and adorning the beauty of the gospel. So go and tell somebody. Have your life reshaped as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And for those of you who are skeptics or struggling or have doubts or fears, I am so glad you're here today. Take the time. Investigate. We'd love to walk alongside you. And for some of you, that will take some time. For some of you, it might be like Thomas, that that Jesus reveals himself that you have a, a darkness to light moment. And if you want to take that step today to find peace and hope in believing, we can help you walk through that door. But for some of you, we know it's going to take time, and this is a place where you can explore and investigate the claims of Jesus and find peace and hope in believing. Let's pray. Father, we ask today, we come to you like Thomas saying, Lord, we we have our doubts, we have our fears, we have our questions, but also saying, Lord, we believe, would you help us in our unbelief? So I pray Father, that you would help us to be able to see truth clearly. I pray that you would, you would help us not to 
just be settled in without, and, and to turn our minds off in our lives and in our faith, or to separate out exploration and, and the work of our faith with the rest of life, but instead that you would give us a hunger and a passion to, for what is true. And we thank you that, that you have given us evidence in, in history that we can believe based on eyewitness accounts and truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that even in this passage you talk about, about us telling Thomas, blessed are you because you, by seeing you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe that we are reliant on the testimony of these apostles. But thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've given us to show us the truth and the reality of who you are. Now as we turn to, the Lord, to your table together, Lord, we pray that you would nourish our hearts, that you would lift our souls into your presence. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.